is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu, President Biden hits Russia with the S-word, sanctions. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? This is a flagrant violation of international law and demands a firm response from the international community. The president says the heavy sanctions will target Russian financial institutions and oligarchs. We'll go in-depth into whether this can deter Russia from further action in Ukraine and stop a full-blown invasion. We'll also look into how these sanctions and actions will impact the economy at home, specifically gas prices. And we will also explore why the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, is so interested in Ukraine to begin with. L.A. County D.A. George Gascon now says he'll charge some juveniles as adults. Comes after he faces another recall effort and the release of a tape of a sex assault convict. I'm talking about a light sentence. New studies show maybe two or three COVID shots. That's enough for adequate protection. You may not need a fourth. Former President Trump starting that uh, social media app. And it's 2-2-22. It's Tuesday. We'll look into the significance oh, if there is any. Yeah, I I was suggesting we do the story tomorrow, but I guess that's not good. I heard that there's, like, free margaritas somewhere or something because it's also Taco Tuesday and then whatever company is celebrating. So that, you know, of course, piqued my interest. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't know about that. We start, though, with uh, sanctions. Amber Phillips is a politics reporter for The Washington Post. She just wrote about how exactly sanctions would work. Amber, thanks for being with us. So when the president talks about imposing sanctions on some financial institutions in Russia and on some uh, uh, key people in the government there and some friends, I guess, of, of Vladimir Putin, how does this all work? Yeah, well, one question I had when I set out to answer that was, is Congress the one doing sanctions? Uh, is the president doing them? Is that even legal for him to do And so let's step back and and start from, like, how the U.S. implements sanctions. And sanctions are essentially an economic alternative to military force. When when you're president and you want to try to compel a country to do something or to not do something in this case, and you're not going to put boots on the ground, like Biden has said repeatedly, you can use economic punishments. And this is generally the job of Congress to pass laws um, saying, you know, we, we want you, the president, to institute sanctions on on X countries for these reasons. And Congress did that during the Trump era because they didn't trust President Trump to get tough on Russia after meddling in the 2016 elections. So Congress tried these past two weeks to put together this big sanctions bill. One lawmaker there called it the mother of all sanctions. And experts I talked to said that probably would have been really effective. It would have been like 400 sanctions all at once. That fell apart through partisan squabbling, no surprise there. And uh, so Biden does have the authority under federal law to do sanctions himself. What he did today and then a little bit yesterday was a little bit slower than Congress probably would have liked, a little bit more measured. It seems like he's saving some of these really big sanctions targeting like Putin's inner circle or, or more big banks, for example, for when Putin actually does invade further into Ukraine. Which brings us to this argument that apparently was going on inside the White House, and and people have said from the outside, why wait, right? And even uh, President Zelensky has been saying, why wait? The argument being, okay, hit us once they come through. No, stop them from doing it in the first place. Unload everything you've got right now. Right. And and 
so that is an argument I think you laid out exactly right who's talking about that, President Zelensky in Ukraine, as well as some of the more hawkish Republicans in Congress. They're saying, just do it all now. I talked to a sanction expert who said she was kind of on the line about what to do, and now she, she feels like Putin is just not being dissuaded by any of this. And so uh, let's let's move the red line, she told me, and just put it all out there now and see if that stops him from going further. The I, White House has argued, though, I just want to get the other side of that story. They've argued that, well, if we put it all out there now and then Russia just doesn't care, they invade Ukraine and, and annex an entire country that just completely deteriorates global order um, and international law, and then there's nothing the U.S. can do as being seen as reacting in response. I, I want to go back to what you said before about Congress versus the president, because I want to be clear about this. If Congress is by by law or by constitution responsible for imposing sanctions, the president can do it on his own as well? That's right. What happened was in the 1970s, Congress essentially wrote a law saying, well, President, like we know that we're supposed to be doing sanctions, but you can do them too. Uh, President Biden has to declare a, a, it's like an international emergency, or I forget the exact term for it. And then he can issue whatever sanctions he wants. Um, and the benefit of that, that some, in, even in Congress, argue is that Biden can take them away whenever he wants. So he doesn't have to wait for Congress to pass a law. You know, for example, let's say Russia suddenly stopped invading Ukraine after today's sanctions. Well, Congress is out of recess, so they'd have to rush back and pass a law to end these sanctions. Biden could just stop them, and that's kind of the whole point of sanctions is to take them away when a country complies. Amber Phillips, politics reporter for The Washington Post. President Biden mentioned earlier today that he doesn't want what's happening in Ukraine to impact things like gas prices here. Now, we've already are seeing record prices in Southern California with no peak in sight. Sean Hyatt follows the energy sector in the United States. He's a professor of management and organization at the USC Marshall School of Business. Sean, thanks for being with us. So can the president deliver on his promise or pledge that the sanctions imposed now and maybe more to come against Russia is not going to greatly, if at all, impact gas and energy prices here? Well, I guess it all depends on what the future sanctions could be and Putin's response to President Biden. Right now, the sanctions aren't directly affecting gas supplies, methane supplies to Europe or consumption of oil. But, you know, if the invasion were to increase beyond just these now self-declared independent republics of Ukraine and sanctions were to get worse towards Russia, Putin could respond by restricting methane natural gas supply to Europe, what would happen then? Well, then Europe would have to go more to the markets for the liquefied natural gas, which has already kind of peaked to the end. The U.S. is exporting as much as possible. But beyond that, in order to meet their energy demands, they would have to turn to petroleum products, such as distillates, propane, butane, everything that can come from the barrel to keep their lights on and to keep their homes warm. That is where the price of oil would then spike. And it could jump to, analysts are suggesting, to 105 at that point. Is there anything we've been trying to do in the meantime to, to blunt these impacts if that happens? I mean, can other places try and ramp up what they're doing and then we can catch it that way? 
it'll be difficult because most natural, especially like liquefied natural gas prices are in long-term contracts. The U.S. and Qatar are the leading exports in the world. Qatar only has up to 15% that are in flexible contracts, which they could divert to Europe. So yes, it, it would be difficult. I, I really think that, again, it's all, we'll have to see how this plays out. So far, it doesn't look like it's a status quo right now. Well, and, and it would be more, if there is an impact uh, on us, it would be more than just energy and gas prices, would it not? I mean, once you start uh, in a major way, uh, imposing all kinds of restrictions on a major country, and Russia is a major country in terms of its ability to service its debt, to deal with uh, Western banks. I mean, that's bound to have uh, some blowback here. Yes, it can. For those banks that have like service Russian debt in U.S. dollars, exactly. Russia's importance outside of natural resources, oil and gas, how, how high does it rank? I mean, is some of this going to be a little bit better than we expect? I mean, we think of it, it's it's not a small country, but is it primarily those kind of things? And then we'll escape by with, with some of the rest of this? Yeah, it is fundamentally their oil and natural gas industry. They have a huge impact in the markets. Uh, just look at this. They supply Europe with 40% of their natural gas. This last fall, they cut it by 10%, their flow, without telling us, telling them why. Um, maybe to inflict a little pain to get the Nords 2 stream pipeline approved. And then the wind stopped blowing, the clouds came, and Europe has experienced one of the largest energy crises they've had since 1973. And Germany itself imports two-thirds of its gas from, from Russia. So if Russia decides to taper its gas supplies further to Europe in response Europe will be in massive difficulties. They've already had manufacturing plants that are highly energy intensive, such as aluminum, that have stopped production and furloughed their workers. So, and that has a ripple effect in all the manufacturing in Europe. And, and you know, the entire supply chain, we import products, <laughs> parts, even in our automobiles from Europe, from like the manufacturers there, such as Bosch. So, yes, it could have a um, large impact on the global supply chain. Is the evidence good that economic sanctions actually accomplish anything? So far, they haven't. But that's also because the economic sanctions haven't been really getting at the heart of the industry. And this is why I don't think they're going to do it. I think that. The no, no. But, but, but I'm, I hate to interrupt. But but I'm, I'm talking beyond Russia. I mean, is oh. there is there a good if any good evidence that the kinds of economic sanctions that we're now imposing and maybe will impose on Russia, and we've, from time to time, have imposed sanctions elsewhere in the world, uh, is there any evidence that it actually accomplishes much other than kind of wreck the world economy? Well, one could argue that the economic sanctions against Iran have had success, at least success in basically crumbling their economy, um, because those economic sanctions are basically honored by everyone but China. And their oil production has fallen by 75% since that occurred. So that has had a huge impact on the country of Iran. So it depends on the type of sanctions. You could really inflict pain. But again, is it just the inflicting pain or is it to try to change the strategy of what the countries are doing, the geopolitics? I think that's a different question. Sean Hyatt, USC Marshall School of Business. A little bit later on, new studies suggesting that two or three COVID shots could be enough for everyone. 
And it's two for Tuesday. Literally, it's two, 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 two. So there. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a real short segment. No, we'll talk more about it. Okay. Uh, People like this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right now, Vladimir Putin is being accused by President Biden of a flagrant violation of international law, recognizing the independence of these separatist regions in Ukraine, ordering the troops there. So why is Ukraine so important to Putin and to Russia? Mikhail Alexeyev is a political analyst from San Diego State University, expert in Eurasian politics, originally from Ukraine. Thanks for being with us. So uh, we went into breaks saying, why is he, Putin, so obsessed with Ukraine? There was a speech the other day saying, look, where where you're originally from, he says, has no right to even exist. Hello. Yes, uh, I actually will correct you a little bit. Um, I am technically from the Soviet Union. Uh, When I was born, I lived 27 years in the Soviet Union. and, And that is why Ukraine is important to Putin because he sees the former Soviet borders, the former Soviet Union, as the rightful domain of Russia. Uh, In addition to saying earlier that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century, and that was a century that saw tragedies like World War II and Stalin's Great Terror and China's Great Leap Forward, Uh, But in addition to that, more recently in December, as the big uh, buildup of troops uh, proceeded uh, around Ukraine, he said the collapse of the Soviet Union was the collapse of historical Russia, which means that uh, he basically sees these lands as belonging to uh, the Russian Empire, that that would be the rightful uh, shape and size of Russia, and um, uh, and and without Ukraine, Russia cannot really reclaim it. It's it's the it's the second largest uh, part of the empire in terms of population, and it's located in in that very important region closer to Europe and the Middle East. So, is there a a germ of truth in what Putin is saying? Uh, in terms, do you mean his assertion about the Slavic people and fraternal people of Russia and Ukraine? Yes, uh, and, but even if you want to, you know, sort of telescope it into more modern times, uh, you know, his his notion that the modern state of Ukraine was, was a, a construct of the Soviet Union. Well, here is the thing. Um, uh, the uh, all states... Uh, that uh, succeeded the Soviet Union uh, were the construct of the Soviet Union. And um, when I remember uh, those days when the Soviet Union was disintegrating and the old Soviet parliament met and they had this discussion uh, about all these borders and they said basically... You know, we know that all these borders were created by the Soviets for different reasons, for different contingencies at different times. But if we start challenging them, we will have no end of conflict. And and let's agree that these borders are actually legitimate. So that's what Putin is rewriting. Historically, if you look at those borders, uh, they can be actually all over the place. Uh, historically, for instance, if Putin says that areas in the east and south of Ukraine were traditionally Russian, well, Ukraine can say that areas in the region called the Kuban, which sits 
uh, astride the um, uh, Black Sea just north of Georgia, uh, a large and fertile, big agricultural area, were actually settled by Cossacks. A lot of him had sort of Ukrainian roots and they spoke Ukrainian there. So uh, where exactly should those borders be? Uh, you know, historically is a very tough call. Mikhail Alexeyev, political analyst, San Diego State University. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. L.A. County D.A. George Gascon facing this effort to have him recalled. Critics say he is not tough enough on criminals. Now facing some heat after a jailhouse tape was released by Fox News. A transgender woman who was convicted of attacking a 10-year-old in a restroom in Palmdale in 2014 when she was 17. Hannah Tubbs in the uh, tape bragged about receiving a light sentence because she was tried as a juvenile. Gascon, though, now says some juveniles will be tried as adults and other defendants could get hit with special circumstance charges that would enhance their sentences. We did reach out, by the way, to uh, Mr. Gascon's office for an interview request, but never received uh, either a yes or a no answer. But we do have with us Eric Sadal, who is the uh, vice president of the Association of Deputy District Attorneys. That's the uh, union that represents L.A. County prosecutors. Uh, and Eric, I understand that uh, within just the last, what, few minutes or so, your union has voted to overwhelmingly support a recall of Mr. Gascon. Is that correct? Right. So the line prosecutors of the uh, district attorney's office, in other words, the men and women who actually implement the policies, who understand the impact that these policies have on the, uh, the residents of Los Angeles, know what's happening to victims of crime, know where this district attorney truly stands Uh, 97.9% of our members voted to endorse a recall of DA George Gascon. There was no position taken on the first go-round, but now we have this this time. Uh, What do you think that says? And you actually invited him, right, to have kind of a town hall. You wanted him to to, to state his case, and, and he didn't go to that. Look, we are an organization that always believes in transparency. I think that's kind of the hallmark of the American criminal justice system. It's why we have public trials. It's why we as prosecutors are supposed to give over all the evidence to the defense. So transparency is, is a hallmark that we all believe in. And so, as, you know, in that tradition, we said, why don't you come to the men and women who work in your office and explain them these policies, uh, your, your policies? And he refused. He refused to do so. And, you know, you would think any competent uh, political figure would be able to do that. But he refused to uh, to even show up. Let, let's circle back now to the uh, the case of uh, Hannah Tubbs, but also uh, his uh, Mr. Mr. Gascon's change in position, apparently, on uh, prosecuting some juveniles as, as adults. What do you make of that that uh, change in view? Well, first of all, I don't really truly believe that there's been a, a genuine change in policy. I think these new, uh, these new uh, policies that he's announced, they're really just geared to make sure that he can prevent another Tubbs case from appearing in the media, not that he truly has been convinced that juveniles should be prosecuted. I mean, we have to remember that The Tubbs case got the most press because of the excellent reporting done by 
Bill Malugian of Fox News and also uh, James Queeley of the Los Angeles Times, um, who both helped uncover a lot of this uh, nonsense that was going on. But the Tubbs case is not the first case like that. There have been over 100 cases over the past year where juveniles who should have been prosecuted and sent to state prison were not. Um, so really, the, what the Tubbs case reflects is the absurdity of his policy of saying that no juvenile should ever be, face true criminal charges in our court system. Is it just damage control because they, they knew that the tape was going to and was the tape known in the office? And then then, and then as soon as Fox was going to run it, then we got the press release. This is 100 percent. Panic on that's part of the district attorney, um, this change in policy and anyone who cares about how prosecution is done, how criminal justice is done, should always be wary of someone who governs any type of public prosecutorial agency through a press conference. They knew that Bill Malugian had the tapes. These tapes were well known throughout the district attorney's office. If I knew about them a couple weeks ago, there's no way that the district attorney of Los Angeles, who actually runs this entire office, did not know about them. Well, but isn't it? Also true that, I mean, it's such a large office with so many people that it, it is possible, is it? Is it not that maybe he just didn't know? Well, there's two, there's two things, okay? Either he didn't know, which means that there's gross incompetence occurring within the administration, or he did know and he's simply lying to the media. Either, either of those alternatives does not speak well for the current administration of this office. Eric Sedal, Vice President of the Association of Deputy DAs, union that represents the L.A. County prosecutors. Well, uh, one of the big questions that people have, among many, about the COVID vaccines, how many shots before we can all be done with them, at least for a while? And some new studies may have some answers. They suggest the three shots, and possibly even just two, are enough to protect most people from serious illness and death for a pretty long time. Dr. Peter Katona, clinical professor of medicine in infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. I had somebody ask me just over the weekend, well, when is it going to be time for my fourth shot? But again, this, at least, was what is showing us is that the immune system is, is more than, than antibodies, right? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Um, the immune system is very complicated. And to measure the effect you want to measure, you can either do it in the laboratory by looking at various parameters like T cells and antibodies, or you can actually look at clinical responses. You know, people that have a certain degree of number of vaccinations and how well they do. So you can look at all of those things, but there's a huge dearth of information here. We don't know exactly how long this immunity is going to last and how effective it's going to be. Um, it's still an unanswered question. The, the Israelis like to vaccinate people over 60 with a fourth dose. The Swedes like to vaccinate those over 80 with a fourth dose. We've been kind of very careful with CDC not coming out with any specific recommendations until more data is accumulated. 
Well, you know, I suppose there are some people listening and they just heard what you said about Israel or, or Sweden and might be thinking, well, you know, we keep being told that these vaccines are are really safe and they are effective. So why not err on the side of caution and just say to everybody past a certain age, uh, go ahead and get a fourth shot? Well, you can make an argument for that. You know, you, you'd like to have the data in hand to say, it's optimal to vaccinate a fourth dose at four months or at six months or at 12 months. You want to develop some plan based on the science that you know, rather than saying, well, it's safe, so you might as well just go for it. Um, I, I'm not going to argue against somebody saying, I want a fourth dose, especially if they're elderly. Um, but uh, we still have a lot of information at hand. I mean, we, we can measure antibodies, but we don't know how long they're going to actually be effective. We can measure memory T cells and memory B cells and see how long they're going to remember that you were exposed to something like this. But there's a lot of missing information here. There's a very small chance there's a downside to taking too many vaccinations, but I think that's incredibly minimal. Do people get too concerned about their antibody levels dropping off, though, because so much attention was paid to antibodies? And this is all like the first thing we learned about, oh, get the antibodies high when, you know, some of the other diseases and viruses out there, you can get that memory. The other parts of your immune system can remember even years later. So, yeah, it can get to you, but you're going to mount a response to it relatively quickly. Yeah, antibodies are the easiest thing to measure. But there's lots of different kinds of antibodies. You can commercially get spike antibodies, for example. Characteristically, the ones that scientists look at in the laboratory are neutralizing antibodies. But there's a whole slew of other antibodies. Some have no value whatsoever in protecting you. So it gets very complicated. And I wouldn't rush because of what's recently come out to all of a sudden make a decision to delay or to get a fourth shot. Uh, you you mentioned in passing about the small odds of a uh, downside to over vaccination, and I, I'm guessing that you're referring to I, and and I, I'm trying to remember because we did talk about this months and months ago. Uh, it was is it called enhanced immunity? Yeah, I mean that's one way to look at it. Um, you know, you could overstimulate the immune response and maybe get a negative reaction, but that's never been proven. It's a theoretical consideration. Um, I'm not sure that it has much value in this argument. What about tailoring some of these future shots, if we have them, to the variants that are going to be around, or at least Omicron, or, or maybe what pops up next? Or are we still pretty good with what we've had, perhaps? Because it actually elicited a pretty broad response. I mean, we're on like year three, and it's still doing all right. Yeah, we have a pretty good track record with the original vaccine, which hasn't been changed by Pfizer or, or anybody else. So we're doing pretty well with that. There are reformulated vaccines in the works, particularly between the two mRNA manufacturers, but they may be missing the gun. I mean, you know, Omicron is going away. Maybe there's another variant that will come along and, you know, it'd be nice to have that prepared and ready to go when a variant comes out, not when the variant is just about to leave us. They're also working on a universal coronavirus vaccine, which if that comes into play, then they won't need to reformulate these vaccines from time to time. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I mean, if somebody, you know, you were saying before that you wouldn't discourage somebody who perhaps is of a certain age um, to go and get a, a fourth shot. 
But then what happens if they say, I don't know, in a month they get a fourth dose of the original Pfizer or Moderna, and then, I don't know, two months later, Pfizer or the other companies come out with a reformulated one. I mean, you can do this endlessly. Yeah, I mean, it takes about 100 days from start to finish to get a new new vaccine that's specific to a variant out and in large enough number, numbers to make a, make an impact. But as, as, as I said, you're missing the boat here because Omicron is just about on the way out. So it's, it's the next variant I worry about more than anything else and what that's going to do to us. Well, and to that point, you know, let's say you, you had your three and then you go in to get your fourth now early, quote unquote, and then they come out with a fourth and then you go back to the pharmacy and say, why are we on now the fifth line of your cart? Like, <laughs> right. how did you do <laughs> this? It's not where you're supposed to be, sir or ma'am. That's right. All right, Dr. Peter Katona there, a clinical professor of medicine, infectious diseases, UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felton. Former President Trump, back on social media, started his own venture, Truth Social. The app launched late on Sunday at the Apple App Store, already the top free app available in the store by early Monday. Yeah, the former president, you may recall, was banned from Twitter, Facebook, YouTube following the January 6th attack. With his own app, there's no one who could kick him off. Adam Rosari is a digital marketing expert with Agency Partner Interactive. Adam, thanks for being with us. So I guess he's now, the former president, answerable to no one? You might say that. Or he's answerable to the public opinion and the the social opinions of all those who join his his application. Uh, It'll be very interesting to see how this app grows moving forward. But so far, as of early today, that waitlist was just over 400,000 people. And and as is now, there are just tens of thousands of new users on the platform and sort of a testing capacity. And certainly they'll be watching whatever he whatever he says uh, very closely. Yeah, I was going to ask if it's actually working yet. You mentioned the wait list. Um, so people can sign up and then they put you on that list and you've got to wait however long to actually get on. Does that mean that, like, there's so much demand and they can't fit everybody or that, yeah, they're going to, like, beta test it first and then get to everybody else once the, the bugs are out? Yeah, it could mean a little bit of both. So I, I joined the beta group last week, and I'll say that it's so far very intuitive. Uh, the buttons do what you expect them to do. Uh, a lot of early stage applications take a considerable amount of time to optimize them and to make them function in a way that is logical and, and does make sense. So I, I will say, just from a, a user experience perspective, this app is definitely ahead of the curve. But but of course, apps like this do tend to deal with issues like scalability. And right now, this this wait list that is in the tens or I guess the hundreds of thousands at this point, uh, the company plans to kind of bring those people on board over the next 10 days or so. And the, the indication is that by the end of March, this app will really be at full steam, not only in terms of allowing more of a mass market to join through the App Store, but also in terms of the features and functionalities that it adds uh, to the user experience itself. Right now, it's very much like a like a microblogging site, like what you would really expect through a Twitter experience. We still haven't seen the uh, the subscription video on demand feature that has been discussed, uh, which I believe is going to be powered by Rumble. I was going to ask, how does it make money? It, it, exactly, great question. So it sounds like the subscription model is going to be its way of monetization. Uh, we know a lot of the the more typical the legacy social media platforms out there. They monetize the user data that's on those platforms, right, for advertising. So uh, the business model here, the indication is that it's going to be a little bit different. And, and frankly, it sounds like there's a strong appetite for that, too. Yeah, You said it's kind of like Twitter, the user experience. Um, 
we'll take it a step further. Is it just a ripoff of Twitter because he can't be on Twitter, so he made his own? <laughs> you, some might say that, right? Some might say that. And without a doubt, I mean, what we know to be tweets on Twitter are called truths on Truth Social. What we know is retweets on Twitter are called retruths. So, you know, as far as the actual application itself, uh, we it do looks know like that the a duck way that and it quacks like, yeah, it's the same <laughs> maybe thing. it's a duck. <laughs> how, how much money is behind this? Uh, it, it's crazy how much money is behind this. So, so far, we know that the company started just, can you believe it, four months ago with just under $300 million of cash on hand, and they had a valuation that was close to a billion dollars. Uh, their valuation at the time of the start was $875 million, which is about $875 million more than what most startups bring to the table on day one. So, so this is not going away. It's not going away anytime soon. They've got a ton of capital. They have a ton of really, really powerful leaders on the management team. Uh, I mean, of course, California's former congressman, Devin Nunez, is the CEO of the business. And so you're looking at a startup here that's well-funded, very well-connected. And shoot, Donald Trump has a direct connection to Tim Cook. So uh, the fact that they are only available now for iOS users and also the fact that they have Tim Cook on speed dial is definitely to their advantage. They've got the cash and everything, but and, and you know people like Donald Trump, so his fans are going to go. But, I mean, can you scale it? Because, like we've said, it's in, he's, he's doing something that already exists. Twitter already exists. YouTube already exists. So you're going to have to have both or just stay on the one that you're on. Why are you joining this one unless you really love Donald Trump? Because yeah, you're going to get everything that are on the other sites or maybe it'll be a conservative echo chamber. Who knows? But, I mean, you're going to so get his far, tweets and then that's right. the only thing that you're not getting on any of these other platforms is just him. Well, before so before Parler was taken down um, in November of basically the election time, right? They at one point were acquiring 2 million users per day. And it looks like the demand right there was basically for a different way of, of policy enforcement. The big gripe on some of these social media apps is the fact that their, their policies seem to be enforced with inconsistency. So, you know, this, this definitely is an app that I think is really coming to us really quickly in a, in a very strong way. And the demand is, is huge. Now, here's the thing about the, the app. They're only available now for iOS. That's just about 60% of the market when it comes to mobile devices. So, you know, the question is, is how are they going to then get Android users? That's about 130 million people in the U.S. So, you know, will Google play ball here? It, I, I'm really not sure, uh, but they'll have to have a plan for that. Adam Rosary, digital marketing expert, agency partner, Interactive. Well, today it's February 22nd. 2022 or 2222 on Tuesday. And some of you may be saying, so what? In which case, you and I agree. Right before. <laughs> are, I was saying during the break, are you not entertained by this? <laughs> two, two, two. Uh, yeah, go on with it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's two, 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 But two, Charles, two, it's two. not going to happen again until like 2422, right? Oh, That's like 400 years from now. We'll come back and we'll two, do it two, then. Two, two, two. It's, it's numerologists and <laughs> yeah. others. Okay. Uh, they're making a big deal of it. People uh -huh. like it because they can say, look at the day on yeah, Twitter. Two, 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 and then two, two, Tuesday, T-W-O, Tuesday. I get it. Barry Markovsky, sociology <laughs> professor at uh, University of South Carolina, studies paranormal claims and pseudoscience. He's with us now. Barry, do you like today? I'm kind of with Charles. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> I think it's it's um it's kind of uh, a trivial thing, but it also kind of speaks to uh how our brains work, how our culture works and a lot of other really important things. So that's that's why I'm a little bit interested in it. Okay, yeah. So so do we just like that it's like a palindrome and we write the date this way and we go, oh, that's kind of fun. Or is it something about two or is it about dates that seem cool and we can post them on Facebook or what is it that makes us interested 
in today. I, I think it's something really kind of primitive in, in our brains. We are just hardwired for recognizing patterns. And this had a lot of survival value when we were uh, hunter gatherers uh, and those who survived by recognizing uh, oh, footprints uh, as being prey versus predators, um, different patterns uh, recognized by more primitive cultures allowed them to survive and pass their genes along and thereby pattern recognition is, is something that gets selected for in evolution. But, but, for, today, but for people who got up today and were excited that it was two, 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 did they just not have enough to do? <laughs> I kind of get excited a little bit. I, what, what's going on neurologically is that uh, because we're, we're wired to look for patterns, when we find them, our, our brains give our synapses a little jolt of dopamine and it feels good. So we, we are kind of internally rewarded for finding patterns, uh, interestingly, whether or not there's any connection between the things that we're, that we're finding patterns in. <laughs> we're just enjoying ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did exactly. You, like, we're just tricking ourselves into having a good day for, for whatever reason we can try and have it. Like, oh, look, what a fun day this will be because it's, it's all not, twos. It's not working. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you know working. I say that every day. <laughs> It's also National Margarita Day. So. Well, and that'll ah, help. Now see, that's, see, if, now things, that's if things aren't going well for you so far, yeah, no, that's partake different. in National Margarita Day, and then suddenly... That I understand. <laughs> the, 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 two, 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 I don't. the National Margarita Day, I get that. Uh, people are going to do stuff today. You know, there's like a huge wedding ceremony, I think, in Sacramento, actually... Right now, if, if you're listening to the replay, we don't normally talk like this, but if you're listening to the replay, it already happened. But right now, there's like 222 people getting married, I think, at the Capitol, and it's going to end in like two minutes at 222, you know, 22 seconds on 222. And is it going to last like two years? Or yeah, uh, yeah, Barry, what's the uh, <laughs> what's the good luck charm for these people? <laughs> Just to prove there's no great cosmic significance, it's it's 520 where I am. So it's, ah. it's, it's not 222 everywhere. Yes, exactly. Uh, but but it, is, it is kind of interesting when, when these pattern recognition mechanisms in us uh, make something pleasurable, it's, we, we don't just leave it at that. You know, we, sometimes we kind of organize ourselves and, and we start to develop a little cultural traditions so when we start to act on on this when we start to collectively act on this it becomes real even though it might just be a silly pattern uh you know it could happen that national margarita day becomes connected with february 22nd and that is literally going to change a lot of people's behaviors every year on that particular day so this is this is something that you know, interests me as a sociologist that we we can socially construct something out of nothing. What, what, what's the next one coming up? Um, let's see. What's what are we now? We're at uh, February. Yeah, well, so there's yeah, well, not not necessarily with two two two. But is there, is there something else kind of like this that that's about to happen that I should be um, excited about? <laughs> <laughs> three three twenty thirty three. Right. Three three three. Yeah. Three. Right. There's, there's you wait ten stay. years, twelve years. You know, 11 years there's there's gonna yeah. be a fourth day in in 22 years how many margaritas is that <laughs> you double them up each time <laughs> I, I, yeah that's that would be my approach <laughs> uh, 
so this all kind of ties in with with numerology and you know it's it's about as legitimate as astrology which is to say scientifically not at all um but it is it can be kind of fun and i uh, one of the things that numerologists like to do is use your name translated into numbers by a particular simple code that anybody can do um that's that's in my article on on uh, theconversation.com that this is uh, all based on but you can find it on any numerology website and to uh, to illustrate kind of how silly it is, I, I have a, a good friend from here in Asheville, North Carolina, who's visiting L.A. And her first name is Lynn, L-Y-N. According to numerology, her destiny number is eight. But if she had been named Lynn, L-Y-N-N, her destiny number would be four. And she'd have this completely different array of characteristics associated with her name. And I was looking at those characteristics and all, all the positive ones are good ones, obviously, and they all kind of apply to her. Great motivator, determined, leadership ability, hardworking. Um, that's for her actual name. If it were L-Y-N-N, it would be hardworking, dedicated, loyal, honest, reliable, different, but overlapping and similar. And there are negative things associated with, with those numbers as well. Uh, distrustful ambitions put strain on family relationships wow <laughs> absolutely not true for this woman <laughs> and if her name had been l-y-n-n rigid and dull when it comes to fun also um very much not applicable to her <laughs> so, but uh you know there can be a self-fulfilling prophecy as well once you once you find out what your destiny number is or your horoscope uh for that matter yeah you read it in the paper um Barry Markovsky, sociology professor, University of South Carolina. Enjoy the day if you want to. Well, you know, it, it, it's now 24, and 39 minutes after the hour. Right. And you know what that means? Time for a margarita. Yes. <laughs>